Hello, everyone. I'm here for one of my stories. This is Lindsay Dunn, and today we are back to talk about 1899, episode five, The Calling. With me tonight is Anthony, aka Black Cinephile, for this discussion. Hello. How's it going? How's it going? Good. I'm excited to talk about this episode. A lot happened. Uh, it yeah. was more we're getting we're we're over halfway through now so things are starting to pick up plot wise how did you feel overall about this episode uh i thought this was a great fast-paced episode i gotta say out of all of them this might be my favorite so far and uh the number one reason and we'll get to it soon somebody finally says something <laughs> i mean yes. someone finally <laughs> And they're talking up a storm. And I was just smiling from ear to ear, like, oh, look at you. Yeah, we, you know, if I had, I don't know how to use sound effects uh, yet in my podcasting, but we did, there would be some kind of like celebration air horn um, right now mm -hmm. because there was talking, talking from the boy, which was very exciting. So that was... It was unexpected, right? I mean, were you did you thought the day would never come? I knew it would come. I just thought it would come like around the time that the the show's second season got picked up by a new network and they're like, "Okay, now we got to make the boys speak." <laughs> it's a new season. We got to make the boys speak. I was like, "All right, I might have to waste some time for this." Mhm. Mm mhm. Okay, well, I think I'm ready to dive in. Does that sound good to you? I'm ready. All right. Okay. So we have, we start with our feature character being Mora. And in, in many ways, these scenes where we see her are a repeat of the very first scene of the whole season where we saw mm -hmm. Mora. Um, it's just that we see more of it and we see additional facts. But uh, it happens a couple times right here at the beginning and then halfway through it's basically the same question so those questions are like where is my brother and what have you done with them we find out his name is kieran this time so we have a name for the brother and what are you doing on these ships and he found out what you were doing on the ships so uh, that mara was our lead character and we also saw there was a cross that she she keeps visiting. So there's uh, a dead body uh, somehow involved with that. What did did you have ideas about who might be in the grave marked by that cross? And what else do you want to say about Mora's scenes? I'd say it's either her vision, yeah. I think her baby might be under that cross. If I'm going to be honest, because um, then she have like a failed. She had a failed pregnancy, didn't she? Or she lost the baby? Right, like a that. miscarriage, or they maybe lost the child immediately after it was born. It, it could either be that, <clears throat> or it could be her brother. But uh, when I first started this episode, and, uh, you know, she opens her eyes, I'm expecting the, you know, the wake up whisper. And I didn't get that. I said, okay, so we're, we're, we're going somewhere else now. Uh, uh, you know, go over to she walks by the cross and then sees the words wake up on the cross mm -hmm. i go okay this this is where she wakes up and then um you know we cut to the whole like sequence of where she's being carried away the the shots being put in her 
I think she's waking up in whatever hospital she's in. This is my theory. My mm -hmm. theory is this is all about her waking up in wherever she may be in present day or right. whatever present day is in regards to this series. And she was given a shot and put back, immediately put back on the cruise. And then we hear the classic voice of Mara going, wake up. Then mm -hmm. she wakes up and finds out, oh, what's going on? That's kind of what I thought about it. Yeah, we get this the shot with the syringe several times. Um, we see the hands, her hands are scarred from being put in restraints. So that this, this must happen often, whether it's in the past or still in the present. There's this thing about her brother. There's a grave. There's a hospital in the distance. She will, she later enters the hospital, but these are all parts of her, uh, parts of her past that are coming out. And I think we find out later that she says that her father would, she was a doctor at the hospital, but her father would try to trick her that she was a patient. Um, so that's very um, Shutter Island of, of a plot point <laughs> there. Yeah. But uh, good opening. Of course, we want to know more about Mara. I, I did sort of, I was sort of hoping we might explore an, another one of our characters' backgrounds. But on the other hand, Anthony, we are running out of characters. <laughs> you know, by the end yeah. of the episode, we end up, uh, you know, and then there were 10. You know, I didn't really, I'm, not, I'm coming up with a number, but um, it's starting to become more and more apparent which characters are key players and which characters are disposable. I almost thought for a second there we was going to go with Virginia and show Virginia's past, but mm. I that would have been interesting. But, um, you know, we, we got, we you know, back to basics. It's no problem with me. Like, like I said, you know, the plot, um, I want to say about 13 minutes in this boy, things go off the rails and it's uh, it's really good, like uh, like like pacing wise. So I, I, I didn't really have much complaints about it. I, I, I went, OK, let's let's go back to a back to business. Mm -hmm. So when Mara wakes up in the ship world, she is, she wakes up and there's Daniel next to her looking concerned mm -hmm. and she asks what happened to the boy and it turns out he's back in his cabinet again. <laughs> See, I thought that was so, that, that was just so spot on. I started laughing like, cause I'm like. What would happen? What would realistically happen in this situation? Oh, the boy's alive. Wait, the boy's alive. Put him back in there. Like, I ain't taking no chances. Yeah. Put that boy back in there. Yeah, we're sad that you died, but we don't necessarily like that that you're alive. Right. Uh, that you hear the banging on the door, and he's banging. You know, it's not like before we've had before where the boy was inside a cabinet and he's kind of knocking gently with these two knocks, the double knocks mm -hmm. or whatever. This was these were like loud knocks. So I was getting the feeling that perhaps he's tired of being in the cabinet. <laughs> you know, it's like right. it's no longer um, sure I'll behave. You know, he's he's like let me out of this thing for whatever reason. But Ike mentions they threw him off the railing. No one survives that. So, uh, you know, what are we supposed to think? And he's sort of using the boy as leverage to try to get, you know, Mara to tell him more in that moment. 
Um, not necessarily the best time maybe to reveal stuff just because she's surrounded by people where right. we can hear, but he's like, first tell me why your name is on the passenger list of the Prometheus. Mm-hmm. Um, so down in the third class, we have Franz making, trying to make a grandiose speech. He continues to try to like maintain control of some kind. And, uh, you know, one thing that I'm not sure if we talked about in the last episode, but during, you know, when the whole mutiny happened, Franz and the, you know, his crew were kind of up on the bridge taking, you know, they had the control room and then all mm-hmm. of the first class passengers got shunted down to the, to the third class. But during the fight, somehow Ike and that crew, you know, retook control of the top deck and now Franz and all them are down in the bottom deck and he tries to make this speech to say well this is a good thing because even though they have control upstairs we have control of the boiler room and the coal so I guess he was kind of trying to say if they switch directions and turn around all we do is shut off the coal and they can't go anywhere you know so we're in charge of the machinery and the runnings of the ship but then th- this character, Eugene, or Eugene, I guess, is probably, at least for us, it's Eugene. He mentions, well, the punishment for mutiny is death. So, right. <laughs> not so great after all. Um, Iben tries to say, uh, well, you know, she says, justice is always on the side of the survivors. The light will always prevail. We're not going to surrender, even if it means more sacrifice. So Ivan is continuing her campaign, trying, both Franz and Ivan are in their own ways, trying to show that. I love that line. Yeah. Uh, Say more. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I was going to like, you know, what did you say about sacrifice? Say that again. We're not going to surrender, even if it means more sacrifice. I love that. Like, that's such a telling line in this episode for what comes next. But I, I love how she specifically says that for what happens later in in relation to her. But I remember just writing down my notes when, you know, Ivan is like, you know, uh, you know, the light will always prevail. And like the arrogance of like, we're on the right side of history on this ship as mm-hmm. if these people are so oblivious. Like, like this, this is literally how riots are, are ha, have started. This is how mutiny has started. There's a specific type of worldview or opinion that my side is right because I'm against the grain and things aren't right compared to how I feel. Like, the, the, these are how these events happen in, in history. And I just love the way the show carries that out. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I didn't think about it that way. But, yeah, she says, we're not going to surrender even if it means more sacrifice. And, of course... There's a pretty big sacrifice that ends up being made that maybe she re- maybe she regrets later that she said that. You know, famous last words, right? When you when you say make a grandiose statement like that, and then it comes to bite you in the butt. Um, Crestor and Tove have a speech, even though we we established the last episode that they. Were sort of, you know, they've they were on opposite sides, and there didn't seem to be any kind of room to compromise. But mm-hmm. Tove tries it again. You know, she's she's loyal. She tries to like reach out to her brother and and say, 
come on, do you really want these guys to win? Is this really who you want to be with? And um, I love how she says, hearing voices isn't a sign of God. It's a sign of madness. <laughs> she sort mm. of, she yeah. tried to say that part. We also, the other part that I noticed about this scene is that once again, Crestor kind of goes on the defensive and, um, you know, she mentions, you helped her kill the boy. And he says, well, it's not like you haven't killed anyone. So instead of saying, thinking about what she said, he sort of bites back. And you can tell that that is, he crossed That's the deep. line. Yeah, yeah, he cuts deep, but it also crossed the line. It's probably one of those things that they had silently agreed they weren't going to talk about. He's not allowed to bring that up to her, but he brought it up, and you could see on her face that that was a you know a pretty big boundary that uh, that he had crossed by bringing up that incident that we don't know much about yet. I just felt so sorry for him. He just looked so deflated. Like, I can tell that the boy's death really, you know, uh, well, the boy's supposed death in the last episode really weighed down on him. Mm -hmm. I think it was a lot of stuff, right? I mean, the boy's yeah. death, even, you know, he spit, he spat in on Hill's face, but it wasn't like he enjoyed that. He was put in a situation not. that yeah. he felt he had to do, and he just had sort of a sense of, of hopelessness. <clears throat> about him mm -hmm. um that's something i want to talk about a little bit later um mm -hmm. but uh we also find out that the promise that he made was that they would run away together once they reached america um so uh, the whole thing caps off with her picking up her rifle and saying I'm going to do what I should have done a long time ago. What did you mm -hmm. think she was going to do there? I mean, I uh, I really thought she was going to go commando and just start, you know, <laughs> blowing bullets. Because I was like, I, I don't know what's going through Tove's mind. You know, I I, I kind of should have thought my, I kind of should have used my writing brain. Go, no, no, be, be, be rational here. She's probably going to go over to the other side. But... Yeah, I the way the way that line was written, the way that scene was shot, I'm like, well, what did you want to do? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. So, you know, she was taking her rifle uh as a way for protection, I guess. But it was it was like something we're gonna do a long time ago. It's one of those it's kind of a famous line where you go, What is she going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, we had a scene here with Lucien and Clemens that was interesting, and I don't want to dwell on it too much. We can talk about it as much as you want, but I it was just another one of the things that's frustrating for me about this couple is, and I mean the whole one of the themes of the show, right, is communication and lack of communication. Mm -hmm. And right. whenever these two are talking, I feel like they're not talking with one another. They're kind of talking to each other. Mm. Um, or rather they're talking out loud the other person just happens to be in the room exactly yeah yeah, but yeah there's I, whole, uh you know she he says like uh or she says were you even in love with me once and he's like 
uh, he doesn't answer the question. Instead, he says, well, you just don't know what it's like to be me. And then she's like, well, was it all a lie? Right? You know, it's just like, we're not going to actually communicate and try to come on the same page. We're just going to accuse the other person of being a dip. Yeah, I, I think it's very self-pitying on um on 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 his part. But I, I drew a I drew a parallel line between him and Crestor, you know, where Crestor is immediately regretful of the things he's done that have uh, just happened. I can tell that that the Frenchman is um, um he he does he's not immediately regretful, but he has some self-pity and shame from what he did to um, you know, um I forgot the cast, Jerome, Jerome and uh yeah. and his past and you know his his fraudulent past. He it, the past has come back to haunt him. So I, I, I do like a little bit of a parallel line between those two characters where Crestor gets more empathy. He would naturally naturally get more empathy than um than Lucian. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I still felt a little empathy for Lucian. I was like, yeah, this guy's a he's a sad schmuck. I felt I felt sad for him. Mm-hmm. And, and <clears throat> Clemens's big thing is, well, did you love me at all? Was it a lie? Right. And he um, he says, well, every day I wake up and I wish that I didn't, you know, so <laughs> mm. it's it's a very strange. It goes back to for me that Lucien, you know, he's in this life where he thinks, oh, I'll get away with it. But because of the guilt that he hasn't done anything about he knows he's an imposter so he can't fully enjoy that role so the whole time he's probably had some level of resentment thinking well clemens probably only is with me because i'm this lieutenant and i'm this and i have this money so i'm not even who she thinks she is which is a great uh, commercial for not lying or trying to pretend like you're someone you're not when you get into a relationship. Um, because right. even though he tried to do it, it wasn't it wasn't enjoyable. Yeah, I was just I was like, man, he's he's a schmuck. You know, let's let's move on. That's how <laughs> I felt when I was watching. It. I was like, he's a schmuck. She's a uh, you know she she's stuck with the wrong man. That's just what that situation is. Mm-hmm. I wish they could, I wish they would just make him a little bit more of an interesting character. But yeah, he's pretty, we talked about it. I said the word, uh, I think I said pathetic. And you said, well, I don't think he's pathetic. I think he's he's something else. But <clears throat> yeah, just not somebody we necessarily want to hang out with too much. Yeah. So then we have Olick and the boys that... Um, you know, come up to Ike and are basically like, so what do we do now? And uh, Tove at this point comes in with her rifle. Now, I don't know about you, but I, w- I was thinking, all right, one, that's one strategy. You're coming in to say, I'm here as a friend, but yet you brought your <laughs> rifle. <laughs> Right, it's like this is go time. You don't you don't go to the other side with a rifle pointed, saying "Whoa, whoa, whoa I'm on your side." Uh, and that leads to a moment that happens not slightly after, where you know people shoot first and ask questions later. You did not, especially in a moment like this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Toby comes in and 
everybody else is dealing with the fact that they saw this boy. She doesn't know that that he's a factor yet because he's in the cabinet. And so they're all kind of distracted with with Tove now, like trying to figure out what she's there for. And Mara mm -hmm. sort of tries to take the moment for granted where everybody's attention is focused somewhere else to go ahead and let the boy out. And this is when we got the matrix moment, we could call it, or uh, the, the freezing time moment. So I want to spend some time talking about this scene. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, somebody points the rifle at Mara and shoots the, shoots the rifle at her. And this is when right. we get Daniel, our, our man, Daniel, ready to take a bullet for Mara. Yep. Um, and then it's froze. The bullet freezes. So I want to hear your thoughts about this scene and the way it played out and the way they did it. I I loved it. I uh, um because I, like I said, this is what happens at the height of riots. You know, people lose their resolve. They they lose their um uh their rationality. And when Moore was like, uh, "I'm taking the boy out." You know, you could see the one guy that was trigger happy again. You shoot first, ask questions later. Mm -hmm. Boom. Now I knew Moore wasn't gonna get got. You know, she's the main character. But uh when every when time kind of froze, I went, Oh, this is interesting. Because at first I thought it was Daniel who did it. As Daniel's mm -hmm. like leaping in front, I thought he had probably like pulled some kind of switch to make time freeze. And um I was like, Whoa. And when she grabbed the bullet, I'm petty. So I thought she was going to grab the bullet and point it back at the guy that was shooting it so that when time goes back up and she shoots himself. That's just me being petty. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I thought that that scene was pretty cool. Yeah. So it kind of, that scene bothered me a little. I thought it was cool also. But one thing that bothered me is that Mara goes in to like grab that bullet and I was thinking she's going to burn her fingers off. But they made it, um, <laughs> you know, you, have you seen Tenet? I have. You know, that's the whole, the whole deal with, you see the bullet scene at the beginning when he's first learning how it all works. And they talk about inverted bullets and that it would right. be devastating to have an in, inverted bullet enter your skin. How mm -hmm. hard that would be because the whole and when she's when they're messing with the bullets in Tenet, this is still, um, you know, she never handles the bullets. She puts on the rubber, the neoprene gloves, right? Because the the bullet was still traveling in the air; it still had energy. So the fact that she was just able to touch, you know, this bullet and have nothing happen that, you know, I was like story wise that bothered me a little bit um but not enough that it ruined my thoughts about the whole episode um i, I think if i'm going to look at it from a theoretical standpoint she's in a time and space where things have slowed down probably the same as like what would happen in in normal gravity or in normal time so it burning her fingers it probably I, like I don't know. It probably like 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 stung it a bit, but not fully burned it because of the time and space she was in. Mm -hmm. if, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know. Yeah, she just I'm kind not of a physics major. She just kind of picks it and and drops it on the ground basically. So it 
yeah it just bothered me to to a certain level i was like that's not realistic this this team this story writing team they're so tend to be so good with science um so it took me out of it just for a minute but but just for a moment um <clears throat> at this point we see that the boy uh more or less the boy of the cabinet and realizes he's the one to stop time mm -hmm. with uh, perhaps with the pyramid. Uh, what was your interpretation of how he did it? Do you have any thoughts about that? I think we saw him turn it at one point uh, in earlier episodes of the series. So I imagine uh, just like another device we see later on with another character, probably did his magic with reworking it like it's a Rubik's Cube mm -hmm. and it has different functions and he has different uh, powers with that, with that uh, device. So I figured he probably like turned in some kind of Rubik's code to make that happen. Yeah. Well, Mora is just like us. She wants to know how he did it and who is he. So she's back to asking him questions. He's not answering anything and leads her off to show her something. Um, the rest of the group unfreezes <laughs> and they just see all they see is an empty cabinet mars gone the boy's gone mm -hmm. and then we have um everybody confused and that's when those air sirens start up right creepy and all hell breaks loose yeah creepies all get out everybody's like um trying to figure out what to do it's chaos and confusion then the sirens start up and you feel their pain of being like, what now? You know, what else mm -hmm. can happen? Yep. Um, the boy and Mara are in the hallway and they pass on hell who isn't looking so good. And he tries yeah. to stop them. I was, I was thinking he's probably, he was probably maybe going to ask where Ramiro was, if she had seen him. Um, but, she just breezes past him and we go back to the room and the Daniel and Ike are having this, I don't know, maybe part of the lover's triangle. Ike is like, what did you talk to Mara about? Um, mm -hmm. And Tove actually is the one that intervenes and tries to get them to stop fighting. And she's basically like, you're the captain. So what do you want to do? Um, and then Ike says, well, this isn't our only problem. We don't even have enough coal to to make it all the way. And they've been at full speed. And Daniel uh, stand, is a stand-up guy and says, he's right. So, um, you know, he we need to take the ship back over. Mm-hmm. The air sirens stop, and that's when we have the ticking noise that <laughs> starts. Yeah. Um, so anything you want to say about any of that, all those interactions? It was a lot of stuff happening in very quick succession. I don't have much to say about that. Um, you pretty much laid it out. Uh, you know, there was a little tiff between Daniel and e Ike about Ike wondering, okay, who is this guy? Would you and Mara talk about? Uh, I need answers. What's going on here? 
I, I can only imagine what's happening in Ike's mind right now. Like the one woman he's kind of sort of confided in this whole time is uh, becoming more and more enigmatic by the moment. Mm-hmm. And he his mind is just kind of frazzled. Right. And everybody's looking to him for answers and to be the calm one. And we have to remember that before in the first couple episodes, Ike was really sort of, you know, he was the vision of calm and peace. He came out and mm-hmm. he seemed like very in control. But through these, all of these events and everything that's happened, he's become more and more <laughs> unfurled. As right. He hasn't really had a moment to take stock of things or come up with a good plan. And now everybody is looking to him for answers. And then there's this Daniel guy. And yeah, so um, with the ticking noise, all of these characters just began moving towards the water and jumping off of the boat. And it takes a while to get there, but it's very atmospheric and well done. They, they basically become, I don't know, what would you call zombies. them? Zombies. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, about the ticking itself before we get to in the details about the characters. What did you think about the ticking? I thought my, I had alluded to before, um, we would talk about it later. I was thinking that the, the people, um, there's, there's several ways you can interpret it, but one of them is that the people who go to jump are they've run out of hope. Mm-hmm. And that's why we had characters like Crestor and um, and Yuck and um, the different characters that decide to go. There's been a lot of stuff that happened. They're locked in their rooms. They don't have, they don't get to decide where they're going anymore and we see that later jerome says he thinks it's catching um Mm, right it can be you can be okay and not susceptible to ticking but it could something that's contagious basically and i was thinking that the ticking is the people who are susceptible are like out of hope so what did you have any thoughts about what happens with the ticking so first, I thought um, at first I thought it was like a non-diegetic piece of the score. Like I thought it was something only we could hear. But then I was like, oh, they hear the ticking too. And then that's when I saw the people marching. I mean, the loss of hope is a is a cool theory. But then Lucian would have joined too, because that that dude's kind of been without hope. You know, like I said, he's 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 a schmuck. Like he's always walked around a self pitying. Uh, what's that line from The Sopranos? Uh, uh, Uncle Junior says, "Uh, you're like the like you're like the starving woman with the ham under her arm, saying, where's the bread?' <laughs> you know, like um. So like I think I figured Lucian would have joined them, but you know, I I looked at it as okay, these characters, it's their time to restart, so to speak, because I think I hear something about a character saying, I don't think they're dead. I don't know if, if Mora or another character yeah, says that later on. Yep, yeah. So I think this is their time to kind of restart a little bit, like they're." Their functions in this story 
because I'm looking at all this as a story. And, you know, as we talk more about um, some things that are revealed later on in the episode, I, I, go, I look at it as, okay, these characters have kind of fulfilled their, uh, fulfilled their purpose, fulfilled their purpose. Time to, time to go back to the, uh, the, the motherland uh, for, for, uh, to, to get primed to restart. That's how I looked at it from a sci-fi perspective. Hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting theory too. I, I do think, you know, we see Jerome comes in to, uh, basically tie up Lucien and Clements and also Lucien is in the room instead of in the hallway. So I don't know if it makes a difference, but, um, but yeah, that's, your role's been fulfilled. That that certainly ties into like the video game theory we've been talking about all along. It's like your character's done now. We don't need you anymore. Thank you. Um, but if they're resetting, and I think they even say that later, that um she says they're not Mars says they're possibly not dead. Um, but yeah, then where do they go? Once they jump in the water. Where do they go? Do they go on the other ship? Like, now we're going on the Kerberos. Now we're going on the Prometheus. I don't know. Maybe they just go back and forth between the two ships. So um, they may they may go they may they may get back on the Kerberos in a different dimension or in a different uh, I want to say world, mm -hmm. so to speak. Or there may be a path that they that they've been primed to take. That when the boy went to the ocean. Or got pushed off the boat into the cruise, or, or, or got pushed off the boat into the water. He chose a different path to circle back around. Mm. I don't know. Maybe we'll yeah. we, maybe we'll find out what happened. Maybe yeah. that'll be like the opening <laughs> scene of the next yeah. uh, episode. Or it could be just another cliffhanger where they leave us stranded. Could be. Could be. Could be. Okay, so then we then have uh, all these bodies are jumping. Crestor, yuck. And um, we can see, oh, Landon, the garlic man, thing number one in the boiler room. Um, that was kind of sad because he's our comic relief, right? The comic relief yeah. has has left has left the ship. Um, and Anker sees his son jump off the ship, which is very sad. We have Sebastian mm -hmm. back down with the red buttons again, uh, with the red button panel, pressing the different triangles. And he just kind of looks at all the bodies jumping and he's like, eh. walks away. It's another day in the office. It's <laughs> <laughs> another day that in is the office. kind of his, his facial. He's just like, all right. Um, the boy and Mara have a scene where he. Uh, this is when he speaks, right? So you want to? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what well, you want to talk about the boy? And, and when this happened, and um, you know, Mara said to him, like, uh, "All right, now, now, look, look, you're gonna have to give me something. I don't know where we're going. What's going on here?" He whispers, "You know, they are listening." I clap my hands, like, "Finally, all right." If that's all he ever says, I'm okay with that. Then he goes, um, oh, I can't tell you. Uh, she, she she says something to him about like uh what's going on or what is this? I can't tell you, you have to ask the creator. I said, Oh, he's he's talking, talking now. Like this guy could this guy's gonna give some real dialogue here. 
uh, yeah, that was a great moment to me. That's what yeah. made this my favorite episode. Even though you're wondering, why didn't he just write that note before? <laughs> I can't. Right. He was deciding if he could he could trust Mara. Um, we'll just we'll just say that. Um, but she, yeah, you must ask the creator. Or, but it's in a British accent. You must ask the creator. Um, mm. So then the two teams meet. The two teams being Franz and the mutineers and Ike and company. I thought this was this was interesting because they all are like, you put down your rivals, no you. But then when they realize what's happening and all of the you know, people are are jumping and killing themselves, basically. Mm -hmm. um, they all kind of join forces to try to stop the people from moving. That That's their, their strategy. <laughs> so we're just going to all grab onto you. <clears throat> um, it, it's sort of like, when you see there's a greater enemy than the one in front of you, you join forces to, to, to do, to do something together. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a neat moment because Jerome and Franz were next to each other trying to hold back the crowd. Right. Like, yeah, France and Germany working together for once. <laughs> no, I didn't take that. That's funny. <laughs> um, so um, Mara goes down into her vision. She follows the boy. He shows her the beetle and what it can do. Um, goes down into the black submarine tile. She's been down in these panels before with Ike, but this time she goes down with the boy and he shows her the beetle and how mm -hmm. it can open up these portals or hanging windows into her dreams. Yes, this was beautifully shot. Uh, mm -hmm. The thing opens up. Mora is climbing through this. You know, it looks like a, a cube, whatever you would call a shaft. It's in a cube shape. And she's just crawling through, and you can see her image, her um, image reflected off of the sides. And it made a really interesting design. And there was, of course, the really droney ambient music playing really mysterious music mm. and she comes off comes out into the dream that she had um so that is that was a pretty like you know needle drop scene right there i thought that was really yeah i liked it It's, you know, basically her vision before. So then Daniel comes in and curses. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> ah. Um, Who are you taking? Yeah, the door the door closes up after them. And, but he doesn't need a beetle, apparently. He can use his little slidey buttons machine to make anything happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he kind of turns the boy around and is giving him a little lecture. You know, you shouldn't have done that. He says a lot of weird things here. You shouldn't have done that. 
it knows we're here now. Mm -hmm. I wondered who it was. Uh, and the boy says, we've never made it this far. Maybe it will work this time. Mm -hmm. So uh, later Daniel says, he talks about he, he says, he won't find you. So he uh, made a little more sense, maybe being Mara's father, but I didn't know that, I didn't know about it knows we are here now. That part I was really confused about. Yeah, I, I didn't know what it was either. Um, yeah. It's one of those things where we might have to wait and see what's, uh, what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so Daniel leaves him there and says, you know, basically, you should stay here. And I need to stop this before they sink the ship. I need you to stay here for a while. He won't find you. So the boy gets left in Mara's vision. Um, we next go to Ramiro goes, this ticking noise has happened, people are dying, Ramiro thinks of Angel and, and wants to make sure he's okay, so he runs to his room, and there's the little song that they are, that Angel is singing. So, um, I was curious about this song, of course, um, Mm -hmm. The song is called La Terrara, and okay. it's by a composer, Federico Garcia Lorca. This is a song that is often considered a children's song. It's about a crazed woman who dances wildly, and people laugh at her. So she's sort of a town nutcase and part of the problem is she's wearing the wrong colors um, for the for the day or the tradition that's going on. Mm -hmm. But everybody, you know, kind of enjoys her dancing. And it says that the Tarara has a wounded little finger that no surgeon could cure. So um, it's just that it was just another one of those little interesting factoids that this song is sort of about being different, being out of step with the rest of, of people, and that the, the protagonist of the song defies social norms. And the songwriter, actually, I found out he is gay also. So um, okay. the song was written in the early... 1900s so um yeah it was you know one of those it's one of those things that like Angel is singing this song and he knows it why does he why is this the song that he's singing it could just be like oh this is a song that um you know he's known since he was young but it was an interesting little one of those little reveals that maybe says something about his character. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, because right here, Angel's obviously a little bit, he's distraught, which is, could go mm -hmm. back into the lack of hope thing. He's basically locked himself in his room and put furniture in front of his door so that he can't get out 
he's not he's really not looking so good um he was looking a little mentally unstable himself i guess is what i'm trying to say <laughs> right right mm -hmm. um we have a lot of tying up now jerome ties up lucian clements himself the danish family all begin to tie themselves up along with franz uh ivan they make sure they tie up ivan first because i guess she was in danger and then ling and Oleg are together and they they tie themselves up so all of the all of the couples and loved ones are together here and trying to help each other yeah i thought that was um you talked about it earlier but i liked how like I like how the plot shifts in this episode. I I like how we're we're going from one place to the next with following around Mora, seeing what she's doing, and then looking at other people, you know, tying themselves up, going like, okay, you know, let let's try to fight this thing. It feels like um about to make another Christopher Nolan reference. So it's like it's like that moment in Inception where there are like three different plot lines going on. The mm -hmm. car is still falling through the air. They're walking up this snowy mountain to get inside Killian get deeper inside Killian Murphy's brain and, you know, Elliot Page is trying to save Leo from his wife. Like, mm -hmm. it's like three different plots going on. Like, well, it's two different plots going on, but I like that. I like how the plot is working. Right. It's definitely, there's there's layers to it. And uh, it did make me wonder, though, that can you tie, you know, Jerome ties himself up, obviously. Mm -hmm. And but I guess you're sort of, because you become a zombie, it's not like you can want to, once you're tied up, you can't move. So I guess that that's the idea. But it was like, well, how does tying up help? If you're a zombie, you still want to eat, you know what I mean? Once you become a zombie, you still want to eat people. So I wondered if you could actually hold yourself back from from moving, if you tie yourself up good enough. But, right. Um that's a little bit different than, than your point, but um, I wonder, I that, that was the what I got stuck on. I was like, how can you keep yourself from jumping? I understand tying someone else up, but how can, how do you make sure you tie yourself up good enough for that? Hmm. Wilhelm is yeah, getting, I mean, you yeah, just go gotta, ahead, it, sorry. No, no I was going to say you just got to trust yourself, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Wilhelm is getting messages in the telegraph and the messages sink ship. <laughs> um, right. So that's interesting just because, um, you know, this is what you're supposed to do before and you didn't do it again. Uh, so that was unfortunate. We have Daniel at the panels trying to get the ticking noise to stop and he has a battle with thing number two um who basically tries to knock him out with a shovel he he gets hit twice pretty pretty good <laughs> um i uh <laughs> I like how that joke early on when they were talking about wolves and vampires, it pays off in this scene. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's like, uh, he's like, you're, you're a wolf. 
you know, I'm not, you're not going to come for me. My frame was right. Yeah, Landon was right. That was so funny. So, um, Mara has come out of her panel at some point. Um, I guess she did another wake up and Mara and Ike meet. And this is the part where Mara is like, Ike, I've been looking for you. And he's like, <laughs> he grabs her and throws <laughs> her against the wall and says, tell me now, you know. Right, you, you think it's gonna be like a uh, like a like a lovers reunion? He's like, nah, nah, mama, you you got some things to answer. You got some explaining to do, as they were saying. I love Lucy. Ain't, ain't no re uh, ain't no reunion in here. So finally, finally, Mara and Ike share everything. Mm -hmm. I feel like that they were very open with each other, and. Mora admits that she doesn't remember being on the Prometheus, but you know, she recognizes that her name is on the ship, that she doesn't remember it though, and he shares that I uh something I didn't tell you was I was the captain, apparently. <laughs> um, <laughs> and shows her that. So both of them have some you know they could both be like you have some explaining to do well you have some explaining to do it's like the spider-man uh meme but mm -hmm. they both finally share that uh you know feel safe enough with each other we also find out that mara's nickname is henrietta Sure, um, you know, that her brother named her Henrietta as a way to pick on her because he felt like she was too much like their father. And uh, she mentions that four months ago, her brother contacted her. He wanted to meet at the docks in Southampton, and he said he found out something about the father, that she went, but he never showed up. And uh, then she learns that one day earlier, the Prometheus had left on the same dock that he's been missing for four months, same length of time as the Prometheus. So she suspects that her brother was on the Prometheus, I suppose. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> so... Yeah, they, and she shows him the beetles. She shows him how to get into the portals. And I thought this was interesting that, you know, it, it wasn't... You, when you were in Ike's room, if you go down to his panel, you get into Ike's vision, right? If you're in mm -hmm. Mara's room and go in her panel... Well, that was pretty cool. You go into Mara's vision. Yeah. Um... So I had a theory about Mara I wanted to share with you. Okay. Um, now, we may not get a chance to explore all of our theories fully because the show, you know, has been canceled. But one theory right. that came to my mind is when she says, she says that her brother uh, called her Henrietta because 
she was too much like her father. She later shares with him that um, that he tries that she thinks that he is doing experiments on the people um, that they are not really dying that she's study that he's studying human behavior and that these ships are experiments to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, if Mara is like her father, is it possible that Mara is the mastermind? The mastermind behind everything happening? Or what do you mean? Yeah, like, if she's so much like her father, um, does she also study human behavior? Does she also, um, this whole time... Oh, I see what you're saying. We're, we're led to believe that probably the evil dude is the father. And we we see him at the end. We see right, the father. Right. Um, but is it possible that she's working with him and not... You know that we're sort of, that we're sort of blinded to the fact that she's in on it. Um, it's definitely worth considering. Uh, I I believe that maybe she told her father, "Hey, always keep me sedated so I can figure out what's going on, so I can see how this experiment goes." Don't believe whatever I say to you about letting me go and all this. You know, always keep me sedated. I could picture her having that conversation with her father and and embarking on this experiment with him. It's possible. I don't Plus, think that's what's going on, but oh, go yeah. ahead. I know. Well, I know. You, I knew you wouldn't maybe be totally in favor with this theory because you, you know, you're you like Mara. She's like one of your favorite characters. <laughs> um, hmm. But there's also the fact that Mara says, "Wake up!" She's the one that says, "Wake up!" So, um, you know, the only other person we saw say "Wake up" was Mara's father in her episode. So. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, hmm, why is Mara saying wake up? Um, it's not like the doctor is saying, the, her father's not saying wake up. Um, but we also know she was a doctor that might, you know, may, thought they were, led to believe they were a patient. So it just made me think Mara could have more, um, you could have like, you know, because of the way her father raised her, maybe she has these uh, tendencies to want to do experiments on people. Mm. It could be. I don't think she's malicious. I'm just, it, it just be an interesting reveal right, right, at right. the no, end. No, no. It's yeah. like, ah, oh, yes. You know, she's like, oh, you underestimated me. <laughs> um. So Daniel finally gets the ticking to stop he looks very exhausted, very tired after doing that. Everybody, because once the ticking stops, everybody sort of comes to. We have um, Angel regains consciousness again and is grateful to see Ramiro. The Danish family all get consciousness and Ivan finally has to come to, you know, she's now has to come to terms with that her son is dead which is very sad she's mourns um they all are mourning at that moment i thought that was yeah it was realistically done because sometimes when disaster happens 
you uh yeah you're so occupied with those other things that you sort of delay your own warning in this case it was a science fiction plot point that we have this you know you're going to become a zombie for a little bit but mm -hmm. they sort of have to wake up and finally be like our son is dead yeah yeah i thought that was realistically done too because the whole time she's just like shaking and you know she's she's barely moving uh you know, she she didn't accept Christer for who he was. And I know that kind of hurt her deep because of her own, you know, uh, religious moral convictions um, uh, that she held uh, over uh, her, her son. And uh, yeah, she goes in the end, she goes, uh, she, they go, oh, it's over, it's over. She goes, Christer? Like she mm -hmm. says it with a question mark. And, you know, you think she, her, her son's <laughs> like, oh, her son's back now. He's alive. But, you know, it's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a very sad moment. Yeah. And she says, I believe she says, my son, my son. And whereas before she was like, I wish you were dead instead of Ada. Um, that we see she didn't really mean that because she's genuinely sad about, you know, Chris's fate. So um, I think you mm -hmm. talked in the last episode, Anthony, you mentioned there could be a come to Jesus moment, but we had talked about maybe the come to Jesus moment would be that she saw the boy was alive. Um, that does not happen in this episode, but she still has to kind of contend with the fact that she was not a very nice mother to him at the end. Right. At this moment. Okay. Now, Towards we're towards the end of the episode here, and you already mentioned Virginia, um, <laughs> where she's standing. I guess she was about ready to jump. Is that how you took that she was standing on the balcony? You know, I didn't know how to take that really. I I didn't know what Virginia was doing. I, I looked at it as she maybe was looking at the the waves, like like what just happened and how should I move forward? How does this affect my business? You know, mm -hmm. like how like, I feel like she still was within her hustler mindset, but she was trying to discover like, okay, where do I go from here? This 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 tragedy that just happened. I don't know if she was sad about it, but I think it might have put a dent in some of her plans. Yeah, she mentions that she had the strangest dream. And she almost looks, mm -hmm. I mean, Virginia is not, she is an attractive woman. She's not <clears throat> unattractive, but <clears throat> the way that the way that she looks right now, she looks almost this is the most innocent we've seen her look, the the most kind of vulnerable and mm -hmm. childlike. So she has sort of a very pure face about her in this moment. And she says she just woke up from the strangest dream. And then we see the people that are left, which isn't very much. Uh we have Angel and Ramiro, we have Ike and Mora, Daniel. Lucian, Clements, and Jerome, Sebastian, and, um, you know, Tove, Crestor, Ivan, and Anker. So I believe mm -hmm. that's all that's left. Those are the parties that are left. Um, so then Sebastian comes out, and nobody likes him anymore. <laughs> He's on everybody's shit list. But, um, 
<laughs> he has the orders to sink the ship. And this is when they play the ending song, which in this case is The Wizard by Black Sabbath. <laughs> what? No, I just, I mean, I just, I, I love how they made that as a mic drop moment. And um, and when he goes, uh, the note says, sink ship. And I don't know if it's Ike or somebody, but somebody says, I don't think they're talking about the Prometheus. I think they're talking about us. Right. I'm like, I'm like, no duh, Sherlock. Like, you know, like I know we we as the audience know what they mean by this point, but I get to I know the kids are just coming to, to terms with this, but I'm like, you're really gonna come to that realization after everybody just walked off to their death that oh wait, they mean to sink us. Mm hmm Well, I didn't I I sort of had to have that spelled out for me because you are like sink ship what sink what ship well there's only one ship left it's it's this one oh okay well um, no i'm saying that because i'll oh, go ahead no go ahead no i was saying that because initially when they got the sink ship message okay they're near the prometheus now they're not near the they're not near the prometheus anymore we know somewhat that this triangle company that sends messages is connected to tomorrow's father so he he obviously knows everything that's going on and knows that they're not near that ship anymore so when they hear sink ship this time, in my mind, I'm going, oh, okay, it means sink that ship. But then they come to the realization, like, my God, they mean us. Like, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that, that might have been just me. Um, so then we think that's the cliffhanger, but then we shift over right. to this second cliffhanger, which is this very um, 1970s-looking living room. Um, and Mara's dad at the desk, you know, we just received an alert from Project Cobras. And I got a good look at this note. It was kind of funny. It said, uh, <laughs> Project Cobras protocol, initialized protocol 8672230. And... Uh, you know, there's just a bunch of triangles, of course. And it looks like that, uh, what did you, Scantrons? I don't know. Like, before you had electric typewriters, I guess. I was just like, what is this printed on? What is this font? Um, right. Uh, tell him he doesn't have much more time. He needs to bring me the boy. And then we have the... Uh, the wizard himself looking out mm. the window and we see the large black pyramid. What do you think about our ending this time? Uh, it left me, uh, it definitely was a cliffhanger. I was expecting to see the TV screens. Like I was mm. expecting her father to be watching them on TV and I would have been like, oh, that's a nice cliffhanger, bringing everything back full circle. But, uh, yeah, they just keep throwing haymakers at us. I don't know what that triangle is. Like, is there like a sound stage where all their bodies are and they're 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 living out this ship experience in there? I want to know what's in that. Mm-hmm. And can I say yeah. that one guy that, that was talking to him, uh, the bald headed dude with the mustache, he looked like a he looked like a beefed up uh Brian Cranston. Was that <laughs> just me? He looked I like was... a beefed up muscle Brian Cranston. I was trying to figure out who he looked like. He definitely reminded me of somebody, but 
I couldn't think of who it was. And I meant to go back to IMDb and, and look up, you know, who that actor was, but, um, but yeah, it was, so yeah, I was hoping to see the TVs too. And I'm like, are they in a wall in that room? But boy, you can tell that this is by the same people with dark with this, you know, grayed out, this gray color panel on this living room and um, just the way the set pieces with the big curtain over the window, very lavish, um, you know, I guess living room or great room, whatever you want to call it. Um. So, yeah, I mean, as far as next episode or what's coming, I, you know, but the only questions I have at this point are, I'm wondering why the boy always holds the pyramid. Any Anywhere he is, he always, he insists on carrying the pyramid. He needs that with him. Um, you mentioned that might be what, what stops time or what freezes time. So I kind of want to know more about the small period, pyramid he's holding. Uh, curious if Mara's in on it. And, you know, the ticking noise, what happens when the ticking starts? And um, so those are those are kind of my big question marks right now. What about you? Um, I'd like to know how Daniel and the boy know each other and how they're related to Mara. This whole time, I'm thinking Daniel is Mara's brother and he might still be. Uh, so that's my main question. I want to know their relation uh, to each other and to Mara. I want to know if Mora has any more secrets up her sleeve or if she's hiding anything else from Ike. Uh, I want to know what's in the Black Triangle. And that's really my that's really my questions right now. I'm kind of still along for the ride to see what, what other surprises they're going to throw at us. But it is, uh, is kind of bittersweet watching all this, knowing that the second season is up in the air right now. Mm-hmm. I heard a rumor that somebody mentioned that the that Bo Baron, you know, Baron, I sorry, I'm, I'm Baron Bo Baron Odar, that he mm. likes graphic novels. So somebody was speculating that even if he can't finish the story as a TV series, he could always publish it as a graphic novel, you know, different format. Hey, uh, I support it. Yeah, any any formats. Yeah, I was saying, give me fan fiction. You know, I'm. <laughs> I just. <laughs> I wanna. I wanna know where the where the story goes. Like, after, you know, we still have three more episodes, so I don't doubt there will be some good things in there. But yeah, we know the story is not going to be concluded. Yeah, I was, you know, I'm I'm a little wary of fan fiction. Uh. I'm just wary of it. Uh, but I do like how I think Josh Whedon had uh, continued the Buffy the Vampire Slayer story past where the original series ended in the graphic novel format. I think Avatar, The Last Airbender Creators did that too with, with comic books. So it's definitely doable. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I, I read it. I'm a graphic novel type of guy, as you see behind me. Yeah. You know, top shelf. Well, I'm using I'm using fan fiction as a catch-all term just to mean they could publish it as a book online. You know, it doesn't I'm just saying it doesn't need to be a a book that you buy in a bookstore. Um like if it's 
not something they want to spend a lot of money on. Um, I just meant publishing online cheaply, you know, um, but I'm, I'm imagining, I guess what I'm, I'm thinking is no matter what, we will probably get people who want the story to continue to that will post, will post things and put things out there. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, are we ready to close or did you have any other last minute things you wanted to discuss with this episode? Look, I need the best episode of the series so far. The boy talked and, you know, we, we had a great zombie. We had a great chilling zombie sequence. I mean, what, what else could you ask for? It is a pretty good, it is, it is a pretty good episode. I don't know if it's my favorite, but it was definitely a good uh you know, in good, lots of action, character intrigue, mm -hmm. suspense, um, all the things you could want from sort of a sci-fi mystery. So tell us about your channels and anything, any special projects you have coming up. Yeah, you know, you can um, you can find my work at Double Feature Versus, the podcast. We also have a, a YouTube channel. Um, the YouTube videos are taking a bit... I'm taking a bit more time to edit those right now due to personal things I'm dealing with right now. But um, you can still find our most updated episode in podcast format. We just did uh we just compared Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion against uh The Last of Sheila, which was a film that inspired Glass Onion. We put those two together, uh, compared them, see which one won out in the whole little cinematic battle we did. That was a fun episode. And I honestly did not know Last of Sheila was that good. Like, I never saw that movie, and uh, we watched it for that episode, and yeah, great, great 70s film, man. It's a So it came out in the 70s? 1973. Mm -hmm. Written who, by... Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, who's in it, and... um, A very young Ian McShane from Deadwood is in it. You probably wouldn't recognize him on first glance, but you got a double take and go, oh, and that's Ian McShane. Um... I think that's I think that's the actor's name, and uh, James Colburn is in it, and it's a uh, get this it's written by Anthony Perkins from Psycho and Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah. Okay. Hadn't heard of it before. I didn't either until we uh, looked in the Glass Onion and, and looked up the films that inspired Ryan Johnson to create the whole Benoit Blank character. You know, besides Murder, She Wrote and Agatha mm -hmm. Christie and, you know. Yeah. Okay, well, you can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, YouTube, SoundCloud, and uh, at one of my stories and also oneofmystories.com. Coming up, I have, I will be um, on doing a top five Hitchcock episode with two peas on a pod so look for that. I will be doing a M. Night Shyamalan discussion the week before Knock at the Cabin coming up. Um, so that is kind of what is on deck for me right now. And uh, of course, just putting out, beginning, continuing to spit out the 1899 content. So if you're into that, please follow me on my channels. On the podcast, guys, if you do listen to my podcast, one of my stories, I would love for you to not just listen, but sub subscribe, because if I get enough subscriptions on there, I can 
have more leverage to apply for film festivals and stuff I want to do. You need numbers for that kind of stuff. And, you know, right. I know Anthony will agree with me, you know, please listen and tune in, but also subscribe to our channels if you like what we do, because that does help a whole lot. Mm -hmm. So we are signing off for this episode. Next episode will be episode six, which is called The Pyramid. So look for that coming out in two weeks and we'll see you guys then. Bye. Bye.